0: Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you're blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church or its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to connect.redchurch.org.au. Great to be with you today. My name is Mark, and uh, I hope that today's message is of encouragement to you, uh, that it equips you and edifies you as we open God's Word. We are in the final week of a series looking at the church. The series is called God's Vision for His Church. And I want to begin with a text that we find in the writings of Paul. As he writes the church in Ephesus. So we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 22, where it says this. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We see this imagery of a temple in this piece of scripture. And we see this idea that the temple now, after Jesus' resurrection, after the coming of the spirit at Pentecost, is the people of God, that God dwells amongst them and they're called to be a new kind of temple in the world. And this is a natural flow on from the way that we've framed this series, which is looking at the church and what the church is called to be through this framework of the Trinity. In the first week, we looked at how God's nature shapes the church and how we're called to be God's people. Last week, we looked at Jesus and how the church is described in Scripture as the body of Christ. And this week, as indicated by this verse, we're going to be looking at how the people of God are represented as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, to understand some of the imagery that we see in this passage, we have to understand how temples work. Now, this is something that we've looked a lot at at Red uh, over the last year or so. And to understand temples, we need to go back to the first temple. The first temple is not the tabernacle. It's not the temple in Jerusalem. The first temple that God creates in the world is in Eden. The world is God's temple. And so God creates this temple this garden, the garden is a temple, and there's three key elements that I want to pull out today. First of all, is that the temple of Eden is a place that God creates, where His presence and humanity meet. In Genesis uh, verse uh, chapter three verse eight, it says this: The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God's presence is so near. That it's ordinary for him just to be walking through this space, this garden place. And this garden, uh, scripture uh, tells us, uh, is actually a place from which rivers flow. This tells us that it's actually a high place, it's a mountain. And this is imagery of the temple that we see all through scripture. So, a high place where God and humanity meet, God's presence is. The second thing is, Eden is this place where humans are tasked. With this role to be stewards, to be protectors, uh, to be, uh, the scripture word is shoma, these sort of guardians of the world. Where we work and we work to serve God and we work to serve God in his power. That's what humans are called to do. The third thing is that humans are also called to worship God. When we worship God, when we recognize his glory, everything is in its right place. But those of you who have read the scriptures understand that this is not how things stay. That there's a snake in the garden, that humans rebel, that humans sin, and then we are thrown out of the garden. We are disconnected and distanced from God's presence. We're also disconnected from that role that we have in the world, to work in God's strength. And we still have this space in us which is created to worship God, but we fill that with other things which we worship instead of God. Now, we see the effects of this fall all throughout the book of Genesis. When we come to Genesis chapter 11, we find the story of the Tower of Babel. So I want to begin at Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, where it says this. This is now the people who have grown and are in a form. These are the people who are building a civilization, a city outside of that space which God created of Eden. This is the people. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth." Now, there's some really key parts I want to pull out of this passage. What we see straight away is that God creates this human community, which is to live in his presence in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are called to go forth and multiply. They're actually called to go forth with this task to work in stewarding creation and to do that in God's power. And through going forth and multiplying, they actually then take God's presence with them and they move out into the world. Part of their job is to go out into the world, to move across this planet and create that human community in communion with God. It's interesting that the people in this other kind of community that now grows up in the world, this city is posited against that original vision that God has for community. So we've got these two images, one image of people working in communion with God. And then we have people who are distanced and disconnected from God's uh, presence who are actually trying to create something different. This tells us that there are two ways of doing human community. Now, you'll notice that they want to build a city, a city with a tower A tower indicates that there is a temple dimension to what they're doing. In Eden, we see this high place where God meets with his people, builds a home for them. But what we see in the story of the Tower of Babel is that humans are also trying to create a high place. They're trying to reach heaven, but it's happening in a very different way than what things look like in the Garden of Eden. They want to make a name for themselves which is really indicative. And this is driven by a fear that they'll be scattered across the face of the whole earth. Now they're framing this in a particular way. They are resisting the mission and commission that God has given for their lives to go forth and multiply, working and, and stewarding creation of being people who are doing what humans are called to do, but doing it in God's power. So, We see three elements, just as we saw in the Garden of Eden, that God creates a high place, a temple where humanity and God's presence meet and dwell together. This is a place where God calls humans to work and work in his power. And then this is a place where humans worship God and his glory. What we see in this alternate human community at Babel is that they try and make a temple and reach heaven in their own strength. They then, instead of worshipping God, they try and worship themselves, make a name for themselves. They steal glory from God and try and place it upon themselves. Now, what's really interesting is just that creation, God comes down and creates the world and creates this dwelling place for humans to live in his presence. Is that we see in this passage that God's presence actually comes down. Now, this should be a good thing, but it's not really in this passage. Does this mean God's presence is bad? No. What it means is when humans are pursuing things in their own strength, worshipping themselves, walking away from the task that God has given them in disobedience, God's presence, which will come to those who are following him as a healing balm, an empowering presence, here is actually something which then scatters people and God renders their plans asunder. And this tells us something really key to understand when we're talking about building human community, when we're talking about what it is to be the church. Human power resists the presence of God. They want to do it in their own name. They want to do it in their own power. They want to resist the call and they want to define this themselves to have their own autonomy And therefore, when the presence comes, they scatter. Now thinking about this story, this moment when all of a sudden they could speak in a common tongue, this human project where they tried to work at reaching heaven in their own strength, in these great civilizational projects that we see here at Babel. But then God comes and they speak in different tongues. Incoherence is the result of them trying to build this project in human strength. Now, I think there's a resonance to the moment that we find ourselves in. The 20th century was a time when people tried to change the world and create a global civilization in our own strength, where in a sense we reached heaven through technology and politics and culture. But where do we find ourselves at this moment? The great rational world, which people thought would slide towards a human progress, uh, a utopia, a kind of heaven on earth that we do in our own strength, is increasingly looking fragile. We are back at a Babel moment. We are at a post-truth moment where the idea that humans could rationally all arrive at a truth together. I was reading today of a college professor uh, who was saying that increasingly he finds that it's becoming normative for incoming students in his classes to not believe that humans got to the moon and the belief that the moon landing is a conspiracy theory that was filmed in a studio somewhere in Hollywood is actually becoming really mainstream now. And part of the reason he said this is happening is we're at a post-truth moment, but he said it's also we're at a post-trust moment because increasingly trust in governments and trust in what uh, everyone else says in the world is met with suspicion and cynicism. And this means we come to a post-coherence moment where it's actually really hard to agree on things. And sadly, we see the effects of that at this point in time in the midst of a pandemic when post-coherence, post-truth, post-trust has deadly consequences. And so this Babel moment that we're in leads to confused individuals. It leads to confused societies. And it leads to a confused church. But this is where we need to go back to Scripture. Because Scripture has good news for societies, individuals, churches who find themselves at Babel-like moments, scattered, confused, and incoherent. I want to read from Acts chapter two, verses one to six. Now, Jesus has died on the cross. He's undone the effects of sin that saw Adam and Eve cast out of the garden. He has created a way for humans, through grace, through his act on the cross, to again be in relationship with God. He has risen from the grave on the third day. And he tells this nascent group, this scattered bunch of people who scatter at the crucifixion and are sort of brought back together as they encounter the risen Jesus, who then meet in an upper room to pray. Note, high place, upper room. It says this, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. In Babel, we see scattering, we see incoherence. Here, we see the people meeting in a high place and they're all together. This is not a disparate people. This is a united people, all seeking God. This is a group of people who have left everything behind for Jesus, who have left behind identities, who have left behind uh, security and safety. They're meeting together all in one place. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. There's that movement downward. This is coming down from heaven. This is not humans trying to go to heaven in their own strength. And filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now think about fire. We see fire And the burning bush, when Moses encounters the presence of God, the image of fire is used all throughout the Old Testament. Often it was one person, uh, a character like a Moses, a prophet, uh, meeting this fire. But something's changed. This is not just for an elite few. There is now fire burning bushes, if you like, on all these believers' heads. And tongues of fire that separated came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, again, there were moments when the Spirit came on, characters in the Old Testament. This was not a normative thing. It was a beautiful breaking through of heaven to earth. It was an act of God's sovereignty and grace. But what we see here is all of them. All of them are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then listen to this bit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit... Enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard these sounds, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. People who have been scattered coming back. A unified group meeting in a high place. God's presence coming down, not to scatter, but to bind up and bring together. The Holy Spirit pouring out on people who'd left everything behind. This was happening not because they'd done all these wonderful things in their own strength, but because the Spirit enabled them. That Babel moment was undone. And we've explored this story in the last few weeks where we see that Peter then gets up and preaches this gospel message and the scripture tells us that the people were cut to their hearts and asked, what was we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. And that beautiful image of the church, of them coming together, of acting like this image of the kingdom of God on earth, of sharing, of people being added to their number daily, of them learning from the apostles, the teaching This all happens because that undone moment where the Spirit comes and what was torn apart at Babel is then brought back together through Jesus, unleashing the Spirit on the earth. And so we see at this moment when the Spirit comes, confusion gives way to conviction. And this is, again, not a theory. This is not a book they release This is actually seeing this stuff working in real life. Gordon Fee says this, speaking of the early church here in Acts, their success lay with their experienced life of the Spirit who made the work of Christ an effective reality in their lives, thus making them a radical alternative within their culture. So I just want to take you through these images. We started with this image of Eden, of people walking with God, who understood that they had a call, they had a mission, which they were to do, not in their own power, but in the power of God. A people who realized that they were created to worship and thus gave God all the glory, living in his presence. Sin comes into the world. A different kind of human community kicks off. A human community, which is based on actually humans trying to reach heaven in their own strength. Actually of self-glorification, self-worship, of actually people striving and struggling and trying to find security and stability in their own strength. Now, that's the world in which we live. So the church, therefore, that we see here is again living out that Eden mandate, but we're now doing that in the midst of a culture which worships all those other things. But we then, when we are filled with the Spirit, become a radical alternative within our culture. And so we need, if we're going to be the church, we need his power and his presence. We need spiritual power if we're to do the church. To not do the church in spiritual power is a recipe for disaster. But power comes from his presence And his presence in this living temple that the church is called to be dwells not in a building, not in the holiest of holies, like it did when we read of in scripture, but his presence dwells in a people. But it's a people who realize the limits of their earthly power, who are leaving a radical alternative to the scripts of the day, which says, you must do it in your strength. You must find glory. You must build a human civilization. You can reach heaven. And so there's this dynamic that we can see that to be the temple of the Holy Spirit as the church, as our human power and our limitations are realized, as we realize and give up trying to do this in our own strength, it's like that level goes down and the Holy Spirit's power levels come up. Second Timothy 1, verse 7 says, For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. They're the markers that we need the church to be characterized in this coming era. We need a people as the church, the living temple of the Holy Spirit in the world, who are equipped. Not just equipped because they're naturally talented, Natural talents are great if they're pointed in the right direction and are serving God's purposes. But in the coming era, if we're gonna communicate the gospel at this time in history, we need people who are equipped with the gifts that the Holy Spirit wants to give. And many of you watching today, if you have bent your knee to Jesus, if you have been filled with the Spirit, you are equipped with these gifts. And some of us, in a season like this, of disruption and dislocation and even isolation, there's a danger that we allow the flame to flicker and go cold. But we need to ask the Holy Spirit to fan into flame those gifts within us. And so to do that, we need to be a people who are empowered, we need to be a people who live as an embassy on, of heaven on earth. Now in the coming weeks, we don't know exactly the timetable. There is gonna be opportunities for us again to come together as the people of God. And there's a bunch of practical things that must happen, putting our chairs, arranging to meet where we normally meet, letting people know, organizing a service, all the usual end stuff that needs to happen. But there's a danger That we're just going to go on and try and reconstitute and reconnect and replant and reestablish in our own strength. The invitation at this Babel-like moment where people are losing trust in the stories that the culture is telling. When all of a sudden people are again looking for a bigger picture and a bigger explanation. Where there's this incredible opportunity and opening in the midst of a period of genuine suffering. So that we need to be a church that's empowered. We can't do this in our own strength. But what if we came back stronger because we're not doing it in our own strength. We're actually relying on the strength of God. And what if we actually came back and made this not about how we can do this better ourselves, but actually how we worship a God who has equipped us, has empowered us and called us to be an embassy of heaven on earth. And what if there's a bunch of people who in 2019 weren't questioning stuff, but actually are now, who are gonna walk into a service and actually say, my goodness, there is something different and intangible that I can't put my finger on here, but I'm being drawn into something, who are actually gonna meet Jesus as they encounter the power of God. And what actually if those moments when we encounter the power of God, living as the holy temple in the world, that that then goes out, that we have that mandate to go forth to be his people in the world, sent out, equipped, empowered, a walking embassy in the world to take his gospel, to go forth and multiply to the ends of the earth. As we finish this series, three weeks looking at what the church is, My great hope is you realize that we have an invitation to emerge from this time. A different kind of people. A people empowered by God. God's people in a world called by his name, called out of what we've known. A people called to be the body of Christ in the world. His hands and feet with him as the head, as the Lord over the whole of our lives and a people empowered by the Holy Spirit, a living temple in the world, evidence and embassy of his heaven's presence amongst us. Let's not neglect this invitation. Let's not just snap back to what was. I'm not even talking in 2019. Let's not just snap back to what was in those periods we had of coming back for a little bit in 2020 and 2021. Let's step into the invitation to truly be the people of God in the next season. Because God has chosen you, he's chosen the church to be his partners with heaven, here on earth. Let me pray. God, we want to thank you for your call. We want to thank you for your call on us. We accept it with grace and mercy, our own limitations, our own brokenness. The fact that you died on the cross and when you look at us, you don't see our mistakes, our sin. Our confusion, instead, you see us washed white as snow. And so, Father, I want to pray that you will give us a new heart for your church. Yes, we know there are endless examples of when the church has let itself down, let those who were part of it down, and let the world down when we tried to do it in our strength. When we tried to seek glory ourselves. Father, may your church at Red, across Australia, across the world, emerge in a new way. May we be a people empowered by your spirit, equipped an embassy of heaven on earth. We can't do it, but you can. Lead us, we pray in your name, amen.